Uh, welcome to the Crosscut Festival. I hope you've had a great day here and you've heard a lot of great conversations and we're going to have another one right now uh, as we talk about a very uh, critical uh, issue uh, and issues here in our community, growth and gentrification in a tech boom town. Uh, my name is Enrique Cerna. I'm the senior correspondent for Crosscut and KCTS 9. I'd uh, like to welcome you all uh, again to this uh, conversation we're going to have. Let me introduce our folks that we have on hand for today. Uh, first of all, the executive director of Homestead Community Land Trust, Kathleen Hosfeld, has a background in strategic uh, consulting for mission-based for-profit and nonprofit enterprises. Homestead has created homes that are affordable to people who make less than 80% of area median income. Miguel, yes, give a round of applause. Miguel Maestas is here. Uh, he is from El Centro de la Raza. He is their housing and economic development director and telling us, uh, going to tell us about a very great project that uh, I actually had an opportunity to be a par part of, and that's Plaza Roberto Maestas, and also the work done by El Centro to uh, bring uh, low-income housing and business development to the Beacon Hill area. Also, yes. Roger Valdez is here. He's the director of Seattle for Growth. He's been an advocate for progressive supply-side solutions to housing scarcity. And for the past 25 years, he's been involved in public policy in the areas of education, health, and housing. Inye Wakoma is here. He's a filmmaker, a photographer, and a visual artist. And for over two decades, he's created and exhibited visual art that engages the diverse communities in which he lives and works. His work has appeared in USA Today, Colors Northwest, and Chicago Wilderness, among others. Please welcome him. And our moderator from the Seattle Times, a longtime writer there for Pacific Northwest Magazine, an excellent reporter, and that's Mr. Tyrone Beeson. Come on in here. Um, Quickly, before we get started, we want to acknowledge our sponsors, without whom we wouldn't be able to do all of this today, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Killinger Foundation, and our race and social justice track sponsor, the Seattle Foundation. So, Tyrone, you're up, and let's have a great conversation on this important topic. Thanks a lot. Um, welcome, everybody. This is a full house, uh, which is great. Um, we're going to have, hopefully, a very honest and open discussion about, a discuss about an issue that is very personal to me, um, certainly as I look out in the room here, and when I go out in the communities as a journalist, as an African-American journalist, I sort of get a lay of the land and try to get a sense of who it is I'm talking to and uh, what that community is made up of. And, you know, I think that talking about gentrification pulls at so many strings, right, um, it's not just financial, but it's cultural and it's spiritual. People have an attachment to the places where they live, whether they are living in a tent down in my neighborhood in Pioneer Square or struggling to hold on to a house in the Central District that they've uh, had in the family for 50 years. Um, or someone who wants to be a new homeowner in the city who just arrived two years ago. We all have a sense of place that comes from um, our ability to... to live on our own and, and, and develop a sense of autonomy, especially in a, at a time like this, this is important. As we grow and, and get more expensive, um, how do we hold on to the things that are dearest to us 
um, while we watch our values go up and our rents go up and um, you know, uh, do a lot of navel-gazing about what we're losing. So I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about not just um, affordability and the rent being too damn high, but um, how do we, how do we uh, create ownership and how do we um, reclaim and preserve and foster the things that we believe to be important in this community? And I want to start out with you, Inya, because you are a child of the one of the neighborhoods that I'm talking about, the Central District, and you've, you live in your, the, the house that your grandfather um, owned. Talk about how important it is for, um, for legacy to be a part of this conversation. You know, not just ownership, of course, but what it means to have a house in the family. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, so the, the home that I live in, that I currently own, was first purchased by my grandfather in 1947, um, and since that time, it has been um, occupied continuously um, by a shifting roster of family members. Um, <clears throat> and and uh, but I, mean, I would say that you know sort of cheekily, but but I, you know it's it's a real thing, uh, transgenerational. Um, from you know great my great grandmother lived and died in that home, um, and I've had two other significant relatives die in that home um, and had as many as four generations living in that home simultaneously. But that home was also uh, one of six family homes within a two-block radius. Three of the homes, the backyards were connected. One home was Kitty Corner, um, all of which, again, which were occupied by family. And so uh, when I think about um, what home ownership means, um, there, you know, there's the technical and sort of financial profile owning a home. But, you know, I think about um, the homes being, um, <clears throat> being um, sort of a, a, a foundation for the kind of family community that uh, we were able to, to, one, build in Seattle, but the values of which were transferred from the South uh, with that my grandparents generation migrated and brought that, those community values and found a way in this environment to um, have those values grow and flourish across the span of generations and projecting those values into the future um, in the way that they communicated to us the importance of maintaining the homes, being invested in the ownership and the maintenance um, and what the fundamental purpose for those homes was, in the words of my grandfather, was you will always have a place to stay, uh -huh. which was not specifically for me. It was meant for anyone that was a part of that greater extended family uh -huh. network in the present and into the foreseeable future in my life and beyond. Yeah. So, yeah. That's great. And I, I want to bring um, Roger into this conversation because I know that um, you've taken a lot of heat in some um, circles for what I perceive to be promoting um, more of a free market approach um, and a density-oriented approach, build more and uh, more will be available to people. But how do you preserve uh, the kinds of values that Ine is talking about through free market principles and through building uh, denser in neighborhoods that were more single family? Well, something's going on. People are, are hurting. They're feeling anxiety. They're feeling pain. It's real. But let's, let's talk about some data. Um, when you look at the census information from 2011 to 2015 in the CD Rainier Beach area, indeed, there are 2,000 less African Americans and 2,000 more white, white uh, people. Um, 
but in Lake City, there are 1,300 more African-Americans and 400 less um, white people. Same thing in Delridge. So it's almost a, an interesting thing that you've got 2,000 fewer in, the, in that traditionally African-American neighborhood, but in Lake City and Delridge, about 2,000 more. Um, overall, the city is 1% less white over that same period. Um, and new people that are moving here have a, an average income of $37,000. So <clears throat> of the 1,000 people that are moving here every week, the, the average income of those folks is about $37, half, the, about half of the 72,000 of 100% AMI. Um, when you look at the data, the census data, only 6% of the people uh, that have moved, they, they, they do an, an analysis of, you know, why did you move? Only 6% of the people said that they were forced out, and that, that means they had to move for some reason they didn't, they didn't want to move. So what's happening is the city's becoming less white, uh, people are moving around, um, and only 6% of the people are saying that they're being forced out. So the, the idea that there are rich white people moving into the city and forcing out African Americans or people of color is just not borne out by the data. So what do we need to do? Um, Amazon didn't raise your rent. The nine people in the city council did because they're choking off housing supply. So the reason why there's pressure on existing family homes is because we're not building enough housing. So if we built more housing, there would be more mobility within the community and people could stay in their traditional family homes. But what's happening is the city council is increasing the difficulty to build, which means it's their scarcity, which means prices are going up. So you've got more people competing for fewer homes. Well, doesn't it, um, isn't it worth considering, though, that the, the folks who are coming to work for Amazon and other tech companies who are, say, software engineers and what have you, are making significantly more than the folks you're talking about here in the 37,000 range, right? So that we do have to consider that the types of people who are coming here, it's not just poor folks moving to Seattle, right? It, it, it is people coming for good jobs with good salaries and what have you, and they certainly have an influence over the rising rents, even with the um, supply-demand considerations you mentioned, right? Well, that, that's true, but <clears throat> this is the kind of, uh, it's sort of the Galileo effect is what I call it. It's sort of when Galileo went to the church and said, the earth is spinning on its axis and going around the sun, and they kind of went, I don't feel anything moving Galileo. Um, the fact is, is that we need to build more housing that's priced at $2,100 per unit, the so-called luxury housing, because those folks that have more money um, they've, they've got money to spend on housing, but if we don't build that housing, then they're going to go after your house because that's, there's no other place to go. So it's going to bid up the price of the existing af affordable housing. And so the, the, the counterintuitive thing about that is if we want to keep an elderly person you know, or, or a young family in a unit that's $800, we've got to absorb all the new folks that are making more money. Otherwise, they're gonna, the price of that's going to go up. Yeah. Kathleen, I want you to chime in here. I see you uh, chomping at the bit. I'm not sure I'm chomping at the bit, but I, I'm, I, I think statistics, there's lies and damn lies, and then there's statistics. Um, I think we have to 
think about gentrification and housing um, by listening to stories. And I think we have to listen to the people who say they're affected, who may not be taking surveys. Um, so I think what we've seen in Seattle is the wholesale displacement of people of color from the central area. Um, it was 70% African-American in the 1970s. It's 20% now. Um, I don't think that that happened voluntarily. Um, and so I think when we talk about housing uh, in Seattle, we need to think about the people's stories and, and their experiences of being displaced. Um, I, I'm not gonna argue with Roger about whether or not regulation is stifling commercial development. I do know that the city council is working very, very, very hard to make sure that resources are available for affordable housing development and, um, and also that the city um, uh, officials are trying to make sure that the growth that does occur here is equitable. And when we talk about gentrification, just to get back to that little topic, um, you know, we're, we're talking about a phenomenon where disinvested areas uh, revitalize because people with more income than lived there previously now come in and move into an area and that forces people with modest incomes out. Um, they, their property taxes go up so that they can't, even if they own their own home, if they're on a fixed income, um, they can't continue to absorb the increased property taxes. So, um, so I think we, we have to think about that. We have to think about um, as a community making intentional choices that when we re revitalize neighborhoods, which we should do, we should invest in disinvested areas, but let's do that equitably. Let's make sure that all types of incomes can live in our communities and that we're not segregating by by income. Um, let's make sure that um, Seattle stays affordable across a spectrum of incomes. I want to go to, um, to Miguel. Talk a little bit about intentionality, how you intervene in the, in the marketplace, if you want to call it that. And the, what was the thinking behind Plaza Robota Maestas? And what kinds of people live there? Talk to us about who it is we're trying to um, create opportunities for. Thank you. Well, Plaza Roberto Maestas is a recent development that El Centro de la Raza completed up on Beacon Hill, just across from the Beacon Hill light rail station. It includes 112 units of affordable housing that serve people between six, 30 and 60% of area median income. Um, but it also has a, a whole lot of other elements that were part of an intentional development. Um, it, it, the housing is a, a primary uh, cornerstone of the development, but all, it also includes um, a public plaza that also serves as a business opportunity center, an incubator for small businesses, for vendors, for uh, food vendors, car vendors. It, it has a um, also has a retail space and now has three uh, small uh, retail units, um, a, a neighborhood, uh, the station, uh, community coffee house. Uh, uh, Seattle Credit Union and a new branch of Tacos Chukis, which is a small business restaurant um, there on Beacon Hill, and um, and also has a, a a cultural component. It includes a 3,100 square foot uh, cultural event center. Uh, we've had um, over 200 different types of events and activities in that space since it opened up just over a year ago, um, and also has. Um, 
uh, 45, over 45 different artistic tile mosaic murals and art that represents, beautiful art that represents diverse culture and uh, which we had to push for because the design guidelines called for a brick facade and it was gonna look like any other place and when we uh, pushed back and said, no, we, we can put art, we actually put some very beautiful art and did it uh, less expensive than what the brick would have cost. But that intentionality involves um, creating uh, an, uh, an affordable housing development where people have access uh, to educational and, and human services right next to it at El Centro de la Raza, has an economic development component with all of the different economic activity that, that I mentioned, and also ha a, a cultural component, and really is really designed to create more than, than just a place where people can afford to pay the rent, but to create a community that um, involved, that um, has um, cultural uh, expression um, through lots of different ways economic development and ac economic activity. And it also has seven, I almost forgot to mention, seven brand new classrooms of early childhood development that serve people of, of all different economic um, uh, levels. And so um, when you put all that together and you look at um, 40 to 50 new jobs that were permanent jobs that were created there at the development and you look at um, intentionality of art and economic development, you ask like who are the people that live there? Most are, are, are uh, low and middle wage uh, earners, uh, families uh, who live there. Um, our, our development, um, unlike a lot of market rate uh, housing that's being built or apartments that are being built in Seattle, which are studios and one bedrooms, two thirds of what uh, was built um, in the development are two and three bedroom apartments with the intentionality of having a place for families. And, um, and over about 120 of the, of the nearly 300 people that live there, uh, about 120 are school aged children. Oh, that's awesome. And Inye, actually, I, I want to have Inye and Roger talk a little bit about this. The whole idea of communal living, and I don't mean, you know, people just bunking with each other, but someone, you know, grandma owns a house, and maybe a son who's hit on hard times needs to live in that house. But I, we were talking a little bit about how just owning one home, or maybe a family having several homes in a neighborhood, provides an infrastructure that maybe a rental situation wouldn't have. But talk just a little bit about how that's important uh, in communities like the Central District in terms of families creating a, a system and a network for each other through home ownership. Right. So, well, I mean, that is literally my entire lived reality, you know, for the entire time that I've lived in Seattle. I have never, well, short with, a short, with the exception of a short period of time that I live with my father, who's from Nigeria, so who also lives in Seattle. But other than that, I've always lived in family homes. I've always lived transgenerationally. Um, and there's always been um, a sense that the homes were safe spaces for people in need. Um, the way that that played out in my specific home, the home that I lived in with my mother, is that she um, would regularly, um, unofficially, un informally, foster children in the community that were in need. These could be children of um, friends, right? Or children who were in the neighborhood who, in some way or another, their home situation had them in crisis. Um, and, but it's the ability to make that choice, you know, in a moment's notice, um, to say, okay, this person is in need, um, this home is a resource, 
Um, I'm the person that makes the decisions about it. Um, there's no other authority that is mandating what are the rules and regulations around tenancy in this space. Um, and then other folks who are connected to this home also understand that ethic and then participate in that, um, that caring relationship. Okay, and so um, all of my siblings um, have now have relationships with folks that um, in one way or another they consider um, brother, sister, uh, because of that. And then those relationships then ripple out and have impacts in other ways in the community. And so, you know, that, the, that sense of communal living, one, it's very fluid. Okay, it's values-driven and it's very fluid. Um, but the, the process of home ownership, and my mother didn't own that home. My grandparents owned that home, which my mother rented from them over the course of uh, 30 years. Um, but... My grandparents certainly weren't looking and saying, okay, who's in the house? <laughs> are they paying rent or are you paying extra rent or extra you know, fees for this additional person that's putting wear and tear on this? Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this, that <clears throat> I have, um, so there are 11 siblings, folks that are, we consider siblings, okay? Um, technically only five, six of them, five or six of them, five of them, are directly related to me by blood, um, to me personally. There are un other set of siblings that are related to my half-brothers and sisters by blood, but they're not related to me personally by blood, but they're considered no less siblings to me. The reason why that's important is that um, in the last days of my grandfather's life, um, you know, people were doing a life assessment and they're looking and, you know, and there were years that my grandparents were at odds with my mother for a number of reasons. Um, but, and for a number of choices that she made that they didn't like about her life. But um, one of the last things that my grandfather did was when one of my siblings um, from my former stepfather was at the house, he, he turned to my mother and he said, you did good, right? And what he was referring to was that these children referred to my grandparents as their grandparents in, in a way, right? Um, but he was looking at the way that she used her home as a way of bringing people into the family, uh, solidifying their place in the community, right? Um, and he recognized that that was his fundamental intention for home ownership. And so we're talking about six homes that my grandparents owned. So those six properties had one purpose, had one meaning, okay? And for him, it was epitomized in her willingness to make sure that people had family, they had space, they had a place to be. I think my concern when we talk about what uh, the new face of density looks like is that I'm not certain that it will provide families, networks of people, the kind of flexibility to exercise their values in a way that builds community transgenerationally and relationships that can perpetuate across centuries. Roger. Actually, Roger, can you... Yeah, can... uh, I, I mean, I think that's really important. Um, and I think to, to, to maintain that is critical. Um, and I, but I find it interesting that in an era when the New York Times said facts matter now more than ever, that, uh, that we would reject data and that you would applaud. 
um, for for rejecting the census data that, that I just rattled off. Um, the fact is, is we don't have enough housing. And the reason why we don't is because the council's working hard to make it more difficult to do that. One of the things they're trying to do is impose fees on the construction of all new housing. And guys, that's gonna make it worse. And the more you applaud for that, the more they're gonna do it, and the more they're gonna drive up the cost of housing, the harder it's gonna be to build. And this problem's gonna get worse. So unless and until this community can wrap its mind around the facts and the data, um, we're gonna continue to see a spiral of inflation by adding more rules, more regulation, more fees, and more taxes. So it's within the power of the people in this room to put the pressure on the policymakers to create more housing. Because the more the market is able to absorb the demand, and, and we've already seen, the New Seattle Times just had an article that showed that prices have kind of evened off in Capitol Hill. That's because there's a lot more supply up there because there's a demand for the people have to live there. Now, you know, if we're gonna continue to bid up the price of housing, make it more expensive because of bad policy, then wring money out of, that, out of those, that new construction, making it more expensive, to give to nonprofits to build units that are being, buildings that cost $42 million, about half a million dollars per unit. That's not a sustainable way to do this. There's a five-year waiting list to get into Roberto Maestas. So what we're doing is we're increasing the market rate cost of housing, then saying, well, gosh, we need more affordable housing. Let's make market rate housing more expensive and build even more expensive subsidized housing that, that can absorb the, 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 family, the families that need it. Uh, when I was a nonprofit housing, direct, uh, housing director, I had a family that moved into one of our units. It was a, an African family of, of six people, a, a mother and a father and uh, four kids. They'd been living in a, one, in a studio apartment in Renton and they waited for two years to get into one of our three bedroom units. So this situation is not sustainable, guys. And the more that we applaud and push the council to choke off the supply of market rate housing, tax it to build really, really expensive subsidized housing, uh, those families are gonna be waiting and waiting and waiting forever. Roger, I wanna end Gentrification is also about, um, or at least in, in the discourse, about race and about who owns property and who they want to live there. And so I want to push back a little bit because I think that the idea of having more housing seemed, in theory seems um, like a solution. But the Seattle Office of uh, Civil Rights uh, has, has done tests where they will send a white person and a black person to an apartment and the black person is told there's no units available or they're, they're only shown a couple or they are charged or assessed more per, per month for rent. Now those are anecdotal, but uh, there's a good track record obviously of landlords and developers um, not being as sensitive to the ideas about community and diversity and inclusion, you know, as, as, you know as, as interested in those things as we might want. Do you see developers stepping forward to, to address those issues? Because it's not just about affordability and about availability, but people who own property can determine, as you just said, Inye, who gets to live there. Yeah, r racism is real, it's institutional, and you know, many, us, many of us have been a victim of it in ways that we see or we don't see. Um, 
I see BJ Cummings back there, and she's done a lot of work in the South Park neighborhood. South Park used to be a truck farming neighborhood that was primarily an Italian neighborhood. Over the years, it became more industrial, and now it is predominantly uh, Latino and, uh, and Asian and poor, poor white families. Um, it's called change, and it, it's uncomfortable. And, but, but when you look at South Park, it's an example of a place that's evolved over time where it's, it was a farming community. I mean, there literally was farmland there that was farmed by Italian farmers. That's where the market would get its produce. So is there racism in housing? Absolutely, and we need to do what we can to uh, ferret that out and, and squash it. But the, the calculation on a pro forma when you're building eight townhouses or you're building... Um, and, and I wanted to mention this because what the city of Seattle is doing, Councilmember Herbold, is saying that she calls uh, your neighborhood uh, a low opportunity neighborhood. And what they're going to do is make it, the fees in those neighborhoods higher, which means when, pe when developers try to go in and build there, it's going to be too expensive and they're not going to build. It's called redlining. And her lines that she drew around the, the city were exactly the ones that the HELOC drew in the 1940s that said, those areas probably shouldn't, you shouldn't make loans in those neighborhoods. So what's happening is a white privileged city council is saying, we're going to protect you by making it more, harder to build housing in those neighborhoods. That's racism. So if, if we're going to reverse that, we should be making it easier to build more housing. And so there's more stores, more grocery stores, more, you know, they're not food deserts. Um, but the city council is doing exactly the opposite. Can uh, other folks chime in on this issue? Well, I'd like to say, uh, well, Roger referenced the cost of unit at Plaza Roberto Maestas as half a million for unit. Um, that, that number is misleading. Um, there's 112 units, and the cost of building the housing was um, 285000 per unit. And I want to just set the record straight on that. The overall cost of the project was $45 million, but it also included all of the other elements of retail and child development space and event space that I mentioned. Um, and we, as far as gentrification, uh, the effects of displacement on people of color, you know, we, we work on the ground with folks every day, and we see it at a staggering rate. You know, we, we um, uh, there's, there's now st statistics that are saying um, uh, f f uh, that, um, well, 51% of Latinos now live in South, in South County. Um, we recently did a, a, a community needs assessment um, that showed that, um, of, and it was primarily Latinos from different, um, different areas, um, and 20% had answered that they or an immediate family member had actually moved because of the affordable because of the affordability in the last two years. That's not people who are uh, suffering from affordability, trying to figure out how to pay the rent on a monthly basis. That's the number of people that have moved, and and we also see that in the prediction for 2020 is that um, t that African Americans will only make up 10% of homeowners in the Central District. So there's there's direct and immediate impacts of of displacement. They disproportionately affect communities of color. And when we look at the development, that the incredible need for development of affordable housing, because we, we in, in, as far as um, the, the 
nonprofits being able to do affordable housing. There needs to be a more investment uh, for nonprofits to do affordable housing. And there also needs to be an emphasis on, on an investment in communities of color, because not only are, are people in communities of color disproportionately impacted by displacement and the lack of affordability, but there's very uh, a small group of, of, of organizations, and, and we're fortunate to be one of them, that, are, that actually are, are doing affordable housing projects. And there needs to be, an, there needs to be um, uh, communities of color need to be supported in developing the infrastructure and being able to, um, to have the support to do these types of projects. They're very difficult to do, but there must be the creation of mechanisms so that more organizations like churches and associations and nonprofit organizations can directly um, utilize funding um, from uh, to be able to build affordable housing and have a direct response to the crisis that they're that they're addressing in their communities, and um, we see that um, uh, the the uh, you know as as Plaza Roberto Maestas we we were able to um, do a development that included. Uh, tax credit fund, but it also include, included support from, from the city through the Office of, of Housing, the Ho Office of Human Resources, uh, but also required a huge capital campaign on our part and our ability to raise uh, 3.5 million um, that our organization had never done before in order to, to make sure that those other elements were, were paid for and part of the project. Kathleen, talk a little bit about um, Homestead and how you do this approach, but from the home ownership um, perspective. Uh, gladly. Um, uh, just to just to give you an intro into this, one one of the things that when we talk about affordable housing, we tend to think uh, like it's all one thing, um, but actually there's a continuum of affordable housing um, addressing different income segments, and the very lowest income segment is folks who make 30% or less of area median income as defined by HUD, and then there's another segment that makes. Um, 30 to 50% of area median income. And the, the upper end of the lower income uh, spectrum is uh, folks who make between 50 and 80% of area median income. And Homestead works and serves that uh, 50 to 80% area median income. Um, and in, in real dollars, let me just um, explain what, the, what that um, is in, um, in income. Um, it is, if you are a family of four and you make, uh, you, uh, 50% of area median income is $48,000 a year. Um, if you're one person at 50%, it's $33,000 a year income. 80%, the upper limit is a uh, family of four is $72,000 per year. And for one person, it's $50,000 uh, per year per year. The median income in King County is about $96,000. Um, so when we work with homeowners, we are trying to price our homes at, uh, regardless of what they cost to create, we're trying to reduce the price of those homes to within the level that uh, somebody who makes 50, between 50 and 80% area median income can afford. Right now, our typical home costs about $220,000. Um, to uh, build one of those homes costs about $400,000. So our task is to go out and get the public subsidy and the private support to reduce the cost of each home uh, to within that $220,000 level. That's what's affordable to our folks. 
And once the public has put the uh, investment in one, in that home, one time, one and done, that home stays permanently affordable going forward, resale after resale. Our folks can live in their homes, their income, uh, income can increase through the life of the home, but they agree that when they sell that home, they will sell it at a formula resale price that restricts some of the equity gain on the home. They, and it's a pay it forward kind of opportunity that uh, folks who um, are grateful for the chance to get into a home ownership when there really is no other choice for them in this marketplace. Um, they are grateful they want to pass that opportunity on to the next income qualified person. So we've been able to help 243 families. Um, just to Roger's point, I totally agree with his point that we need more. In King County, um, there are 67,000 people just in that 50 to 80% um, AMI category that are either cost burdened with their housing or extremely cost burdened with their, with their housing. And, and um, folks have kind of said over the years that maybe home ownership was this luxury that we really should be focusing only on rental. Um, and for my money, uh, permanently affordable is, um, uh, is forever. That's forever. But it also... Um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought for a minute. Um, the um, permanently affordable um, means that we are investing in uh, a, 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 an alternate economy for housing that is going to create opportunities for folks um, going forward in, in the, yeah. addressing the gentrification and displacement yeah. issue that we're here to talk about. Yeah. And Richard, uh, I'm sorry, Richard, uh, Roger, <laughs> um, that's a, that's a lot of food for thought, and I, I, we have very little time, so I'm feeling a little under the pressure, and I do want to get a couple of questions, but how do you have permanent affordability um, in Seattle when the average rent is somewhere six, between 1600 and 2500 depending on what, you know, what your configuration is? I mean, that's already unaffordable, right? So how, do, how does the private sector then jump in and intervene with, in that? Well, it, um, you know, it, again, as it, what we saw in the in the Times the other day was that that flattening out. So, um, believe it or not, prices for housing go up and down over time. So, when there's an economic downturn, prices go down. And but do they go down that much? It it goes down. Uh, it, I don't know how much it went down in the last um, piece, but in that in that in that article. But the fact is, is that if we if we make more of it when there's economic downturns, it goes down. So. Um, Having more supply is beneficial broadly, but but it also um, there's other ways to to get at that need. Um, so if a person is paying, you know, a hundred or two hundred dollars more than what the normative standard is, um, they're already living somewhere paying rent. Why not just give them two hundred dollars? I mean, that's what we should be doing with our housing subsidies for a lot of the people that are struggling to make you know rent. Just put two hundred dollars in their bank account every month. Um, and you don't have to build them anything, and, and you don't have to operate it and manage it. Um, you've just solved their problem. So there are other ways to, to get at that. Um, I, <laughs> are you all willing to give $200? Well, maybe that's a good idea. Now, I want to ask, but, <laughs> but I don't, I, I think my concern is people want to be able to live on their own, right, um, and have a, have a, um, a stable life. Um, if you're living in a micro apartment or a one, small one bedroom like I do, 
Um, yeah, you can give me $200, but I won't ever be able to have a stake in the community that matches what you just talked about, Inye, or what you're talking about. Well, so how do you Well, home ownership sort of is really important, but again, you know, the, the, the trial lawyers and the legislature have a lot, and the Democrats in Olympia have locked up the condo market uh, because of the, the liability problems with building it. Um, so that important band of home ownership, which is you know, maybe moving into a, from where you are into, a, you know, I mean, I've been looking at it too, and, but there's not enough condominium product that comes in at a price less than a single family, but, you know, people could leverage themselves into that ownership and build the equity, but nobody can build it because of the financial and liability hazards. So if, if we could get a bill passed out of Olympia that would fix that, I think you'd see more home ownership opportunities too. And this is for everybody because we only have a few minutes left. And there's one question here that refers to the city's sort of long-term housing affordability plans. Could you all talk about um, how the city of Seattle can uh, foster inclusiveness when it comes to income diversity and uh, cultural uh, diversity, uh, given that plan, its long-term vision for um, urban villages and that kind of thing? Well, I would say it goes back to uh, around a point that I made before. They have to also engage communities, um, the communities that are being infect, uh, affected, directly affected. Um, and, and, and as I said, involve organizations that have been working in those communities that are interested in doing a, affordable housing, but that are, um, still need that, that extra assistance to develop the, the infrastructure to be able to do larger uh, affordable housing projects. The, also projects like home ownership uh, programs and assistance. Uh, we operate one uh, at El Centro de la Raza. Um, you know, those types of programs are important as well. Um, obviously, as uh, the, um, uh, there's lots of different mechanisms, but I think it goes back to like, uh, first of all, looking at how you empower communities uh, and community-based institutions and organizations to directly address the crises that are happening in those communities. I mean, I think we all agree if, you, if you've if you lived in Seattle, you should be able to stay. If you work in Seattle, you should, you should be able to afford to live here. Um, but I would go back to saying like those communities have to be more uh, at the table when it comes even to like the, the affordable housing industry. Yeah. Um, Homestead is, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and um, Homestead is actually working to position itself as a resource to community-led housing efforts. Um, we have expertise, we know how to get things done. There are communities that are being affected by either uh, rapid growth or just normal um, gentrification that's happening. We want to be able to come alongside them, um, help them uh, build their capacity to uh, make housing choices in their neighborhoods that suit their goals. So giving the communities that are directly affected by um, uh, gentrification the power to, um, to create their own housing and influence the housing choices that are being made by for-profit developers. There's no reason why communities can't have um, better language and better tools to engage for-profit developers to achieve mutual goals. And India, I want to finish with, with go ahead. Please. No, I was just going to say, um, so, I, so originally, you know, and I hope I'm not give, giving up anything, but um, Ron Sims was supposed to participate in this panel. I was, I was excited about having him because um, I, I do, I agree, you know, the whole policy landscape, you know, makes things untenable on a lot of different levels. And you'd probably be surprised to know that there are a lot of things I actually agree with you. Um, your statistics are not one of them. But, 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 you know, but I think to understand, you know, one, I don't agree that the private market is going to provide the ultimate solution. I just think that's a fallacy. It never has in these cases. Um, 
that doesn't mean that there is not a segment of solution sets that can be provided by the private marketplace. Um, but, but, but I've never said that the market will solve all the problems. Well, well I understand that, but, I, but that's been your consistent refrain. It's a, no, it's, it's been a, your consistent refrain. It's a, mis, so it's it's a, a mischaracterization. Well, what I'm okay, saying so, is well, let, let it do as much as it can. Okay, well, let it do as much as it can. So, okay, so I think... Okay, just, we got 30 yeah, seconds, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The, the bottom line, the policy landscape makes it untenable for a lot of us on a lot of different levels. I think we can agree, agree with that. Um, for those of us who own homes, right, um, we're in continually, increasingly perilous times because property taxes are making it harder for us to, to think about what it's going to mean to continue to own in the future. So from a policy standpoint, I think that in terms of making it, you know, uh, more amenable for homeowners, you know, who are reaching the apex of their earning potential over the course of their lives, right? Um, what does it mean to continue to own, own a home and to possibly transfer that home to somebody else who's going to continue to, you know, to make it available to folks in the community? I think that, you know, and connecting with communities in the way that uh, um, Miguel uh, referred to, you know, you have to go to the communities for those solution sets. You have to ask them, you know, well, how do we craft policies that look good on the front end and turn up being wind up being detrimental on the back end. Um, so these are all things that, you know, that, you know, we really have to collectively, you know, be engaged in, right? Well, thank you very much. And I wish we had another 45 minutes or 45 days to talk about this. <laughs> but what do you do? You get, you get the conversation started, but continue to continue it in your own homes. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you to the guests. <laughs>